And now we are starting to get into the empowerment, right? But that takes engagement, that takes conversation and it's conversations with Canadians. And there's a lot of us and we're well spread out across the country Mm. and we all have different interests. But we have to do this. We can't just assume that a top-down carrots and sticks is is mm-hmm. going to get us to these outcomes. So we really do believe that we need to have a significant effort put into engaging with those kind of groups at that local level. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 043, number 43 of the Flux Capacitor. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. This is the seventh podcast in a series shining a light on climate change, net zero greenhouse gas commitments, and what the implications may be of those net zero commitments. Over this podcast, I'm trying to unpack these GHG emissions reductions targets and net zero commitments to understand what they mean for the governments that make these commitments, the potential impacts on the companies that produce and deliver electricity, how it will change energy use, and what it may mean for customers. For this seventh podcast in the series, I'm joined by Tonya Leach, the executive director of Quest. Quest is a national non-government organization that works to accelerate the adoption of efficient and integrated community-scale energy systems in Canada by informing, inspiring, and connecting decision makers. We talk about the importance of community-level engagement, potential net-zero barriers due to regulatory constructs and policy environments, and the importance of spurring investment at the community level for GHG reductions. As with previous podcasts, we wrap up the conversation with some book banter. Here is my conversation with Tanya, recorded in mid-August 2021. Tanya, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Francis. It's great to be back. I'm I'm really pleased uh, to have the opportunity again. Yeah, you know, a lot a lot has happened. I, I took a look at you were you were on uh, episode 12, so 31 episodes ago, and that was back in November 2019. <laughs> My goodness, the world How sure has the changed. How the world has changed? Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. So one of the things that I've been doing on the podcast is I've been trying to unpack what Net Zero 2050 means. You know, I've talked to uh, CEOs from uh, CEA member companies. I've spoken to folks in government. I thought it would be uh, interesting to get a perspective uh, from you, from from Quest. Um, So why don't we start just very quickly what Quest is so people can uh, have it in their mind as we launch into this conversation. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Francis. And uh, I have listened to some of your podcasts uh, on this net zero topic, and they've all been excellent. So um, uh, congratulations to you and the CA team for for pulling those together. Um, Yeah, so Quest is uh, a national nonprofit organization, and we work at the very end of the energy value chain. So um, how energy is being used in our communities across Canada, and we are a convener in that we convene and bring together stakeholders at that local in that local space. So a lot of your members, utilities, um, energy service providers, more generally speaking, uh, governments, 
um, and those that kind of build, develop, and asset manage communities and, and, the, and the elements that make up our communities. Um, so we're convening all of those stakeholders together uh, to really help people understand what actions they need to be taking in order to, uh, to move our, ourselves forward on this energy journey that we're on. Um, and then we also uh, conduct research, applied research. So we work with those community stakeholders um, to help them uh, take action. And we're also an advocate. So we're advocating uh, on behalf of that local space, uh, kind of up the value chain, I guess we'd say, um, on, on some of their challenges and, and interests uh, as, as we're moving forward with our, with our energy transformation here in Canada. All right. So, so what's Quest's involvement been uh, in the in the, the transition to Net Zero 2050 and, and the whole conversation around uh, Net Zero 2050? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know our involvement um, is it hasn't really changed. I would say that drastically uh, because that for us it's always been about the efficient use of energy at the local or the you know the end the end use end of the energy value chain. So yeah. that hasn't really changed that drastically, but. Um, you know, I think that there's, uh, you know, with, with so much momentum on net zero here mm-hmm. in Canada, and I would say probably elsewhere as well, um, what we see is kind of missing in the role for us is that a lot of what has been done so far is, uh, you know, a lot of the modeling specifically ha- is, is top down and technology specific. Um, and it's kind of, I want to say, I don't know if ignorant is perhaps <laughs> a strong word, but um, a little bit ignorant to the the diversity of communities and kind of what does this actually mean in application at that local level so right. um so our our work has, has kind of shifted into we're starting you know using that net zero language as are many others when we talk about how energy is used at the local end of the the value chain and for quest um you know how we approach it is from a very principled perspective rather than prescriptive and so it helps us be able to, um, you know, have conversations with communities about what are what are those impacts and opportunities that the net zero agenda uh, may have on or or provide to those local stakeholders. And I think that's a conversation that is not really yet being had in Canada. Is kind of you know, what does this actually mean uh, in in our day to day lives uh, as we, we live here in our communities as Canadians. Yeah, and that's something that, that I've heard from a number a number of the CEOs from um, electricity companies that have, have been on the podcast to talk about Net Zero 2050, the, the lack of a, a broader discussion um, within society in terms of, of what uh, changes uh, we're going to see from Net Zero 2050. So what, what do we need to do to, to try and spur those conversations? Actually, maybe, how about I back up a little bit? Um, is it important that we have those conversations? Uh, is it, you know, how important is it that people uh, um, understand what the impacts are going to be at a community level for this transition to net zero 2050? Or is this kind of like sausage making, you know? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess, on what, I mean, on one hand, you can see a pathway where, um, you know, everything is just sort of done from the top down perspective, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But I see that as a significant risk. Um, you know, if you just think about the, you know, the, w- people are going to be impacted. There's no doubt about that in, in right. you know, how they make, what purchasing options they have, right? Like, there's a lot of things that will change. Yeah. And so if people aren't brought along in that process, 
Um, and, and you, you know, you said understanding, I'm not, you know, is it, is it that we just need them to understand mm-hmm. or is it that we want them to embrace and empower and really be the pull that we okay. need to kind of drive things along? So I think it's, it's not so much that we just want them to understand that these changes are coming, but mm-hmm. we want them to be able to embrace this. And that requires that they are not just informed about what's happening, but are engaged and are, um, you know, kind of being brought in as the part of the solution right. to some of the challenges that we face. Uh, so that is a bit of a different act, right? Than kind of uh-huh. this top down, we can get to net zero by, you know, changing how uh, our energy systems are providing energy. Um, But it's very different when we say, you know, you've got people wanting to be, say, an electric vehicle or wanting to, um, uh, you know, change the way that their home is heated, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's really important people, from my perspective, is kind of that missing piece right now in the conversation in Canada. And this has been brought out by the International Energy Agency, you see Mm -hmm. it coming out of the UK as well. Uh, you know, I've heard in your previous podcast reference to the um, uh, some of the other kind of um, how we get to net zero reports mm-hmm. that have come out in Canada. Right. Uh, and, you know, the, the piece about behavior, whether it's for people and the behaviors of you and I as individuals or of businesses, is really one of the biggest wild cards of us mm. being able to achieve net zero. And unless we actually start to engage them, unless we start to... Uh, embrace and, and empower them to be the pull, then we're going to, um, this is going to be a harder road, I guess, is what I'll say. I, I, I'm hopeful um, and optimistic that we've got enough momentum this time around yeah. to really see yeah. the changes that we need, but we need to generate that pull from the bottom up. So how do we do that? What are the, what are the sorts of things that, that, that need to uh, either either take place or what are the sorts of things that, that we can uh, do collectively to help people to get to the place where they can embrace uh, these changes and can be empowered? Well, I'm going to say maybe unfortunately, because I think we, we all feel the urgency of climate, yeah. especially with everything that's going on. It's kind of like we needed this yesterday. How can we right. make this happen fast? Um, but there's engagement is so critically important and right. true and good, well done engagement takes time and it doesn't feel like we have the time, but I think we have to make the time. So uh, I think, you know, from our perspective, we need to be having conversations in communities at that local level, bringing multiple different stakeholders together to help them understand what the impacts are in their own local context. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you're an agricultural community, what is the impact of things like carbon pricing and clean fuels and, you know, and, and, and going to be on that local economy. So there's the the conversation about the impact, but then we also need to move that forward and say, and what opportunities does this bring? And now we are starting to get into the empowerment, right? But that takes engagement, that takes conversation and it's conversations with Canadians. And there's a lot of us and we're well spread out across the country Mm. and we all have different interests, but we have to do this. We can't just assume that a top down, you know, kind of, carrots and sticks is is mm-hmm. going to get us to these outcomes. So we really do believe that we need to have a significant uh, effort put into engaging with, um, with, you know, those kind of groups at that local level in order to, to help move them forward. 
Yeah. Listen, one of the things, Tanya, that I've been asking people on the podcast um, was I've been asking people about their journey. So what, what's, what was your journey uh, and, and how did you come to, to be the head of Quest? You know, I always, I always make the joke was this when, as a, as a, as a, you know, a child in the playground, was this what you always dreamed of doing? How did you, how did you arrive <laughs> at your current position? No, I think just uh, fresh off the Olympics, my dream was much more in the sporting realm than it was in this realm. <laughs> um, but um, no, absolutely. Yeah, my, my journey. So certainly did not dream of being in this chair uh, uh-huh. when I was in the playground. Uh, so I, started out working well first of all I did explore that that uh, sporting avenue so all of my education is around kinesiology and human oh, okay. kinetics yeah um and uh anyway but that kind of I left that behind and moved into a communications role in high tech and from then moved into a communications role in the energy industry uh was originally with my my foray into the energy industry was with mm-hmm. the Canadian Gas Association, which was one of the founders of Quest, along with the Canadian Electricity Association yep. and Environmental Nonprofit Pollution Probe, uh, and just had the good fortune of being um, maybe maybe my triage skills made me a good coordinator, but uh, of being able to kind of coordinate different perspectives together, um, and uh, you know helping people sort of come together and, and discuss challenging issues and and sort of work through how we can find a common ground through that. And that has really kind of led me into, into Quest um, and uh, been with Quest since its inception. I think that perhaps is an anomaly for somebody, uh, you know, kind of in their career, but uh, yeah. been there um, for the majority of my career and have been blessed with being able to see this organization grow and, and uh, over 15 years now, Francis, hard to believe wow. it's been that long. Yep. Wow. Um, so getting back to um, net zero, what do you see as, as the biggest challenge that Canada is going to face when it comes to supporting that, that transition to net zero? Is it, you know, what we were talking about a, a couple of minutes ago, uh, getting communities in, engaged and uh, embracing and empowered? Or, you know, is there something else? Are, are there technological challenges? Are there social challenges? Um, what do you see as the, the big challenges here? Yeah, well, well, definitely the people and and sort of the embracing not just people but businesses at the local level. I think that that yeah. is certainly a, a challenge. Um, doesn't I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge. We've got lots of momentum there that we we haven't seen in the past, so I think that's a positive. Um, but you know, there's a number of other challenges that we're going to face along the way. Yeah. Uh, whether that's you know the the fact that, and I think this is very well known in this in the space that the, the regulatory construct of policy environment is not yet uh, kind of established in a way that's creating the momentum that we need to see it's often referenced as a bit right. of a barrier to getting to the outcomes that we're looking for. Um, I do think that uh, we are going to need to have partnerships in a way that we've never had partnerships before in Canada. Um, right. and, and there's some challenges around that that are just, really starting to kind of percolate out things like risk, um, who takes on risk, who has what appetite for risk. Um, so there's there's going to be a number of different challenges in that regard. Um, and I think one of the things that is actually going to help us move forward, but also adds a layer of com- complexity to this issue, is that we're no longer just talking about emissions reductions, right? There's a whole pile of societal issues around equity and diversity and inclusion and all these yep. other components that have all rolled into this. And I think that is probably 
uh, while adding a layer of complexity or multiple layers of complexity, probably a good thing because we need to solve multiple kind of societal issues uh, at the same time. And it just so happens that they're all kind of pointing towards energy as, um, as part of that pathway to solve a number of different uh, challenges that, that we face as a society as a whole. So, mm. um, both, you know, economic coming out of COVID, uh, these social issues around equity, diversity, and inclusion, and, uh, and emissions reduction. So um, maybe we call it a perfect storm. Let's just make sure we make it through the perfect storm. Right. <laughs> So maybe we could talk a little bit about about um, how Quest uh, fits into this, and um, what Quest is is uh, doing to to try and tackle you know, some of these challenges. Uh, for instance, through your your Smart Energy Community Accelerator project, um, or you know, or some of your other projects. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that opportunity, Francis. Um, so I'm going to start with one initiative that we've only just got going, um, okay. working in partnership with the Conference Board of Canada, uh, called Diverse Pathways, uh, Community Perspective on Net Zero. So this really comes back to the comments that I was making earlier about the need to have this level of engagement at the local level uh, to help understand what the impacts are going to be on different community archetypes and, um, and what those opportunities are. There's a lot that we need to learn from that so that we develop policy that is not going to inadvertently uh, you know, kind of leave somebody behind. We know that through a lot of the conversations around equity, diversity, inclusion, that we can't be leaving people behind in this process. So uh, what are those impacts going to be? Are there similarities in those impacts in different types of communities across Canada? Um, what can we learn from that? How can we help communities fast forward by, uh, you know, kind of understanding what the similarities are and what those opportunities are and, and you know can can that help us move forward so one initiative is really about that engagement at the local level and trying to better understand um you know how net zero will help and hinder uh those communities and um and then kind of feeding that information the policy information that we can draw out of that up into the into the, the government um change whether that's provincial and federal um and then Coming out of that, we also have another project which you referenced, the Smart Energy Community Accelerator, oh, yeah, and that's yeah. kind of our working title for this. Uh, and really what we're doing in this initiative is we're working with uh, a number of different communities in Atlantic Canada. We're, we started the project um, mm -hmm. with some funding from the Atlantic Canada Opportunity G Agency with New Brunswick. Um, and working with a number of communities, including an Indigenous community, to help them cultivate the conditions that are necessary for them to both implement what they have put into their community energy plans or help them develop good community energy plans to implement, um, but also creating a forum for um, kind of sharing of best practices and lessons learned so that they can, uh, you know, so that we can really accelerate because it's, it's, you know, it's great that we've got communities that have community energy plans and community sustainability plans, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but where they're really challenged is in the implementation of that. And so how can we help them uh, move through that process in an effective um, and efficient way, recognizing that the majority of communities in Canada really don't have the capacity to take that on. Right. So, um, you know, so how do we actually help them um, by uh, helping to build that capacity in the local context um, or share capacity between communities? Mm. 
Now, on that, on that first one you mentioned, the diverse pathways with the conference board, is that is that something that is, is complete? Is there a report that, uh, that that is out there, or is that something that we can be uh, anticipating? You can be anticipating for that one. Okay. So uh, we've got uh, this this initiative, as I was talking about earlier. You know, engagement and yep. true engagement takes time. So this is the first kind of phase of that, the project where we are um, just doing some kind of research, both internationally and within Canada, uh, to, um, I, I tend to give people a kind of visual image of a bit of a Venn diagram. What does all the modeling tell us? What is that, you know, what is it showing that the pathways to net zero may look like? Yep. We need that as an input into the conversations around, okay, so if this is kind of generally speaking, uh, the pathways, what are the impacts of those pathways? What are the opportunities that those pathways open up when we get into engagement at the local level? So the initial report will be coming out uh, early this fall. Um, and from there, uh, we are, are working hard on kind of laying the foundation for uh, the engagement work that would come uh, that would need to follow on that. Uh, but with the intent of working with, we're obviously not going to work with every community across Canada, but what are the archetype communities that we can work with so that we're kind of covering the most ground that we can. Hmm. So how many, <laughs> how many archetype communities can there be? I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, of something that was, was said at a, an event that, that we held uh, in the North a couple of years ago when um, a, a First Nations leader said to us, you know, when you've visited one remote First Nations community, you've visited one remote First Nations community where they're all different. So how, how does uh, archetype communities work and, and isn't every community different? Well, every community is different, absolutely, Francis, but there's certainly some commonalities between right. communities. Yeah. Uh, and so it's about how do we parse down, you know, Canada's 4,000 plus communities into okay. kind of some kind of buckets, right? And, right? and there's a number of similarities among these buckets, communities, yep. whether they're agricultural communities in a hydro prevalent province or um, you know, gotcha. or something else. So we have to we have to kind of parse it down. As I said, we can't work with every community, unfortunately, um, but we can certainly learn from from some similarities between communities. Uh, but yes, everyone is different, and their pathway will probably be slightly different. But um, let's hope we can find at least some strings that will uh, yeah. be common across them. Yeah. yeah. So as as a convener of local stakeholders, what is giving you cause for concern? Uh, or, or, you know, the, the other side of the ledger, um, cause for optimism as it relates to to achieving net zero. You know, where do you where are the, where are the pitfalls and where are the opportunities that, that you've seen and in the work that you've already done that up until we've now? Seen, I, yeah, I'm glad you said that we've seen because I think there's lots more that's sort of under the covers. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, know yeah. about yeah. Um, well, I would say uh, let's just start with the, the negative, perhaps, and then we'll go to the positive. Um, on the cause for concern. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, I articulated this a little bit earlier, the, the urgency of the challenge before us um, is both a good thing in that it is kind of moting, motivating the action that needs to happen, uh, but I do have a little bit of concern that we're not doing um, the appropriate or the, the sort of necessary level of engagement and understanding of an appreciation for what the unintended consequences may be. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't mean that we don't act because we absolutely must, but how do we do so in an effective and efficient way and not lock ourselves into kind of one solution as the penultimate solution. Right. So I think that is kind of the cause for concern is that 
we have to appreciate that the solutions are going to be different and we can't just look over the fence and say, what's my neighbor doing? That's what I'm going to do too. Um, So that's, that's the, the concern side of things. But I mean, from an optimism perspective, the momentum, I, I, I assume you feel this as well, Francis, <laughs> the momentum that we have, um, I've not seen this in my past, I'm not sure if you have, but uh, I think the, the fact that the environment, the economy, the social issues um, have all come together will be the kind of thing that gives us the, the ability to continue moving this agenda forward and actually make progress this time mm-hmm. around. So we haven't yet seen, to use COVID language, we haven't yet seen the curve bending in the direction we need it to. Right. Uh, it's pretty stagnant though. So how do we continue to push um, to, to actually see those outcomes and, and you know help communities understand that their solution doesn't have to be the same as their neighbor, um, yeah. that they can create their own, their own pathway. So, um, but, you know, again, kind of, getting to collective net zero in Canada is challenging when you've got a number of different stakeholders doing different things that, that help us get there. How do you, how do, how does the math work mm. uh, is the challenge there. But I, I don't think we yet have enough clarity as to who needs to do what. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, to give an example of that, uh, there's lots of momentum in Ontario, for instance, and, and I'll call it pressure perhaps from municipalities to, um, phase out the natural gas electricity generation in Ontario. Um, and that is, you know, kind of being, uh, the push is coming because municipalities see the emissions that they have, at, you know, and that they claim within their own kind of municipal gate, mm-hmm. and they want to see that eliminated or reduced. Well, is that the right Thing to be doing at this point in time is a good right. question and it's good that the ISO is doing some research into that yeah. um, but uh, you know kind of what is you know what is the most logical pathway forward so we've got lots of good momentum we've got the, the pressures on I think in the in the right places uh, but again we need to see a diversity of solutions that fit the diversity of communities across the country as, as the as the outcome. So does this sense of momentum, does it feel like we're now at a tipping point? It's now becoming inevitable uh, that we're going to actually uh, address all of these issues together and be able to move forward? Uh, I hope to be able to look back on that question and say, yes, we were at the tipping point. I don't know. Do you know when you're at a tipping point Uh, is a good good question. Um, I like to believe that we are, Francis. Um, I I kind of feel that we have to be at a tipping point because I don't, we, you know, the, the, the sort of amount of spending that's coming out of the federal government uh, to kind of build the community, build the, the, the economy back, build it back better. Yeah. Um, the, the momentum for, you know, um, building energy retrofit programs and, uh, you know, EV mandates and yeah. clean fuel standards, you know, all of this stuff, uh, you know, is really strong indicators. Um, that we're going in the right direction. I, you know, I do have some concern about the amount of spending and I don't know that we've yet got the right balance between the public and the private sector and how do we actually get the right spending levels across the, you know, and kind of the right investment opportunities mm-hmm. in, in the, in the whole space. Um, and, and I also think that um, anyway, some, some challenges around that perspective um, and I think the other point that is that I haven't mentioned that I wanted to mention is that uh, municipalities are looking at things like distributed energy resources as an economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, we haven't really dove into the regulatory piece, but that's great. Um, but that also comes with some challenges from a regulatory perspective. It also comes with some challenges from a risk perspective. Right. And, you know, when I talk about that, municipalities' uh, ability to take on a risky investment mm-hmm. is very low as compared to other stakeholders, uh, whether those so be their, their ability, utility. their ability to take that on or their, or their willingness. Their willingness, yes. Their willingness, yeah. Yeah, their willingness to take yeah. on the risk. I, you know, they, the um, municipalities, uh, you know, can't have a deficit, right? Yeah. It's just the yeah. way that they're structured. And so, you know, how do we actually um, help them take advantage of opportunities like distributed energy resources mm-hmm. as an economic driver in communities? Um, but with this disconnect between the level of risk that they are willing to accept compared to who they may be partnering with in order to um, to put those resources in place. So mm. uh, anyway, a bit messy, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean we can't do it. We just have to uh, learn as we go. Right. I did, I did want to talk about uh, regulatory uh, as maybe the, that kind of the last uh, the last topic. But before before that, we're recording this the day after the uh, the release of the IPCC's latest report mm-hmm. uh, that the uh, um, that uh, the head of the United Nations described as I think a, a, this should be a code red. Um, so, you know, th- this is all, of course, taking place in, in an international context as well. It does occur to me, are there. Uh, examples of the kind of uh, engagement, embracing, empowering in other jurisdictions that that uh, that you've seen that that we you know should be looking at and pointing to and maybe learning lessons from is is you know are they doing stuff in in Scandinavia that we can learn from or are there other jurisdictions that are that are I don't know doing innovative uh, creative things uh, in the engagement space that might be adapted for Canadian mm-hmm. purposes. Yeah, just doing a little bit of research into that right now. So don't have an answer, okay. Francis. Um, a lot of where we seem to be, we used to be pointed towards Scandinavian countries, right? It's sort of mm. like the penultimate, I don't know, it's penultimate, but it, like it's a great example of how yep. to do it right. Um, uh, I don't know, increasingly I, I find myself looking at the UK and Australia okay. um, as, as uh, kind of other jurisdictions that we should be looking more closely at. Um, but um, yeah, haven't haven't come across any kind of brilliant ideas uh, yet that are kind of how to do engagement um, in a different way or perhaps a more effective way. So um, certainly open if anybody has any ideas about how to do that. I'd welcome them to contact me. But uh, but I do know that we need to do it. Um, that is, you know, question does exist as to how to do that well. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, we've been connecting stakeholders together and, and engaging them for many, many years, mm. uh, we'll continue to, to build on our, uh, you know, our, our, how we do that, I think is, has evolved over time and will continue to evolve, but yeah, certainly open to, uh, suggestions about, um, how to even further improve those processes. Yeah. You, you mentioned, you mentioned the UK and Australia. Those are those are two places that always come up when we talk about economic regulation with with people. Um, yeah. fact, in fact, Paula Conboy, who was with the Australian uh, regulator for a time, was was one of the previous uh, uh, guests on on the podcast. Um, so I, I think that that's a that's a, a natural bridge over to over to economic regulation. Uh, and 
do we need to adapt our economic regulation to enable uh, decarbonization, innovation, um, and you know, are are there specific considerations for communities? Because we've we've heard from other people about you know the, the need for economic regulation to be able to allow for greater innovation. But uh, what should we be thinking of when we're, when we're thinking of communities uh, with respect to the impact of economic regulation? Yeah, I think, I mean, the short answer to the, you know, does it need to evolve, I think is yes, but I think you could say that to every sector, right? We all need to be evolving in one way or another. Um, I think the, you know, we've been doing some research around innovation sandboxes, and there's a regulatory component to that. They're not only, you know, within the regulatory construct, but um, yeah, so, you know, if you kind of look at how regulators uh, and the sort of regulatory, the economic regulatory system is set up, it is not set up to be innovative. Yep. Um, and so how do you actually kind of build some innovation um, kind of culture, I guess maybe we'll call it, into that structure that already exists? Because I think, you know, there's a lot of good from the regulatory structure that we don't want to lose, but how do we actually create a little bit of a, a more of a, an opportunity for innovation to come from that? So. We've been doing some research into innovation sandboxes and have looked at uh, innovation sandboxes in international jurisdictions and in different sectors, whether that's the fintech sector and agriculture, food, et cetera. Um, And there's lots that the energy industry, and and I should preface this by saying that Canada does have some innovation sandboxes in the regulatory construct already, um, but there is still more that we could be learning from that. And I think one of the things um, I mean, there's kind of many benefits to, to innovation sandboxes, but what we don't yet have is um, an opportunity for kind of the learning that is happening through the regulatory um, uh, mechanisms. And I'm going to use that term to mm-hmm. speak to the fact that they run inquiries and they, you know, they're not yeah. just in regulatory hearings all the time. Yeah. Um, there, there is not yet a mechanism that pulls what is it that is being learned through that process. And feeding that back into the policy space to help policy move forward in a way that enables more innovation in the in the regulatory environment. Um, we also need to be able to pilot uh, within a regulatory construct without the um, the sort of formality of it or setting a precedent. So you know, is there and this is kind of the regular or the innovation sandbox allows you to sort of take some of the best of of the regulatory, you know, safety. Right? For mm-hmm. instance, we can't let go of that. Yep. Um, but how do we actually, um, uh, you know, try things within a regulatory environment uh, without uh, necessarily setting a precedent, but allowing us to to do things to learn versus doing things to um, kind of set ourselves in stone on a go forward basis. So. I think there's lots that can be done both from a policy and a regular and needs to be done from a policy and regulatory perspective to enable a net zero future and kind of create the conditions that allow for that. Um, but again, I think it's, there's there's trial and error that needs to happen in that process as well. But there's certainly an opportunity to bring the lessons that are being learned in the regulatory space uh, outside of the regulatory space. Okay. One of the things that uh, I've been asking people uh, that come on the podcast is about a book. Tanya, what are you either currently reading or have recently read that you would recommend to uh, to the listener? Well, seeing as you asked me that question last time I was on your podcast, and I gave well, you a children's uh, book. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I'm going to give you a couple because I am, I have young kids, so I'm still reading with them. Yep. Um, and uh, as much as they are 
in fact, my 10 year old daughter reads faster than I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they are avid readers, but I still like to read with them. So, um, so I'm going to give you a few recommendations for your listeners who have children. My 10 year old is reading The Unwanted, <laughs> which is kind of a Harry Potter uh, meets um, Hunger Games kind of thing. Oh, and boy. She can dive through those books in like, you know, 24 hours. She's peeled off the books. So it's a good thing that that's a series. Um, my other daughter is reading, um, my nine-year-old is reading uh, Keepers of the Lost Cities. So that one is a kind of good empower women kind of uh, kind of book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's by Shannon Messenger. And uh, my summer read for fun was uh, The President's Daughter, which is... Um, a Bill Clinton, Jeffrey Patterson. Oh yeah. Co-written book. Yeah. Uh, certainly not an intellectual book, but a fun read nonetheless. So that's a summer so it's, read. It's a, summer, then, a summer read, is it? A summer read. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. A summer read. Um, kind of predictable, but still fun to read. And then um, the, the sort of real neat book that mm-hmm. I have just cracked open because there's been lots of positive um recommendations online and, and I'm, I'm really not far enough into actually recommend but there were lots of strong recommendations for it is Daniel Jurgen's uh, the new map yeah the new map um, which was published last year which is really uh, you know in this space so, right it's about energy right. it's about climate it's about um, yeah po- politics uh, worldwide so um, those are those are the handful um, and luckily, they're all different enough that I don't get them all mixed up in my mind as I go through them. <laughs> all right, yeah, and, and the, the the meaty the meaty one that 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 I've started reading was a recommendation from somebody who was on the podcast. Kate Chisholm recommended Mark Carney's Values, so I I, I did pick okay. it up, and I'm just about to crack the spine on that one. So. I guess I, I can I, I'll I'll, uh, I'll give my view on it when I have an opportunity to uh, to to work my way through it on a future podcast. Uh, Tanya, great. I'll listen up for it. Yeah, thanks very much for joining the podcast. I appreciate appreciate you you joining us and and uh, I don't know we'll see maybe maybe you can come back in another thirty one episodes. Well, <laughs> we'll we'll see where we are on our on our on our path to, to net zero between now and then. But thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, very much appreciate the opportunity, Francis. It's always great. And uh, and again, congratulations to you on these podcasts because I think they're fantastic and encourage everybody to have a look through the history of your podcast. I think there's there's lots of uh, really interesting speakers that are worth listening to. So awesome. thank you for taking the time to do this. Great. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in this series, which will include industry, government, and stakeholder guests, further discussing the implications of and the pathways to the net zero future. A conversation with pollster Greg Lyle is scheduled for the next Flux Capacitor. As always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca. (laughs) 